a record of the delightful piece they're going to play this evening. There are Jews in the world, there are Buddhists, there are Hindus and Mormons, and then there are those that follow Mohammed's butt. I've never been one of them. How's your faith these days, Father? Oh Lord, oh you are so big, so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. And now, on with the show. Hello once again and welcome to my podcast, Jesus Ducking Christ. It's the end of the year. If you are a religious buff, if you are a denominational buff, if you're one of those crazy people who know undo the whole Advent, Christmas, Lent, Pentecostal event, Epiphany, and of course, Ordinary Time. I might do an extra podcast just detailing all the details of that, but needless to say, Advent starts after Thanksgiving. Next week is Thanksgiving. That is a feast day. So we end the year with Christ the King, or Reign of Christ Sunday. Otherwise, way, that's what this whole thing's about. It is a reading from John, because it's one of those special days, so we took a break from Mark. And we start with year C, which will be, yeah, anyway. So our lesson of this week is John. Chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Let's hit it so I can get to talking, so I can be over with talking, and you guys can all, I don't know, tar and feather me for what I got to say. Here we go. John chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? And Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate asked him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born. For this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And with that, we go on. Listen to me, listen to me. Like, like I do this all the time. And if I go out at the, at the house with the door, Matthew has his toys. And then Matthew has all his toys. Okay, 
But I have to yell at you guys. Okay, what? Like everything they do at this house, they can trust everything at Grandma's house. Okay. Okay, then what? Then you're not listening to me. Then you're not listening to me. I asked you not to do something. Linda, but listen to me. Look at if we do something, if you get that out that bird thing off, you're gonna break it. Okay. But I'm asking, I'm letting you know but that you cannot no, Linda, no I'm Linda, look it, look it. You're not listening to me. Linda, listen to me now. Listen to me now. No, you're not listening. I said no cupcakes. And you try to get cupcakes and you try to ask grandma. Linda, Didn't you? Linda, lick it, lick it, lick it. If we do something without this, if we, if we get closer, you can't even get them. You're going to burn your butt. What's going to burn your butt? Linda, you and Kevin don't listen. So I have to give both of you guys pop pals in your butt. But Linda, but grandma. But Grandpa's uh, gonna give me peppers in the butt. No, he's not. Yeah. Uh, I have to. You want? You don't want me to hit Kevin, or you don't want him to spank you? No. Why? Because anybody uh, wants to spank me. Then I have to spank Kevin. He's your little pop ups, but he doesn't listen. But Linda, honey, honey, look at look at this. Right now, you can't do anything if we can't get everything out of the wall. If we're going to break everything down. I'm not breaking anything down. I'm just letting you know Linda, you cannot Linda, have it, cupcakes it, for dinner. It, Linda, Linda, like this thing, I never belong to you. Anything, you can't get anything and anything and anything. I'm done arguing with you. I'm not making you. You need to listen to the things that I say because I'm the mom and I'm the no, adult. No, look at, listen to me. All the time to get them the, the, this thing, this, this, this thing. The, the I'm done break. arguing with you. Linda, I'm done arguing with you. <laughs> so three-year-old Mateo has just tried to end... And work around this no cupcakes. By getting to his grandma and making the case why he should have cupcakes. Now, of course, he usually calls his mother mama. But when he's arguing, he, he's saying, Linda, honey. <laughs> I don't know where he got it from, but tell you what. That video is an oldie, but a goodie. And it got so many hits in such a short time that Ellen DeGeneres had taken Linda and Mateo onto her show and sat down with them. Now, am I the only one who sees a little of themselves in little Mateo? You know, no, no, listen to me, God. You don't let me do anything. God, listen, listen to me, God. Listen, listen. You're not listening to me, God. You gave my brother cupcakes. You gave my sister cupcakes. What about me? Where are my cupcakes? I'll do anything for those cupcakes. I've earned those cupcakes, haven't I? You know, all the disciples of Jesus are different. But we're all alike in some very critical ways. For example, we all want those cupcakes. And, man, those promises we make. We go to church regularly. We practice all the required rituals, mainly in church. You know, baptisms, communions, marriage, funerals. We show up on Christmas and Easter. 
We go through all the liturgies. We recite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. We've memorized the Lord's Prayer. Some of us say it every week. We do all those things that pertain to coming to church. But when it comes to going from church, not coming, when it comes to going out into the world and sharing the gospel through our actions and our deeds and even our mouth, we just do exactly what the uh, Jesus' apostles did before and during his arrest, right? We hide. We take off running. Because it's too big of an ask, we say. How can Jesus ask so much of us? We will spend an entire year pretty much listening to the stories, following Jesus and his disciples around, watching them, learn, learning from them, admiring their faith, wondering at their sacrifices, nodding when they get it. But we don't talk about their failures, do we? We don't like to feature their faults. Yet, even after Jesus raised Lazarus, even after he performed all those healings and all those miracles, even after he told his disciples what he'd have to do, at the end of Jesus' days, the disciples are still qu squabbling and quarreling. We heard all about it for the last few weeks, haven't we? They sat at dinner with Lazarus and his family, and they grumbled when Mary poured nard over Jesus' feet. Then, after their last supper, what happened? They went up together in that upper room, and then they went and followed Jesus to Gethsemane. And during the worst night of his life, when he's so upset and distressed, he's literally sweating blood. His disciples can be found doing what? Nothing. They're tired. They're bored. They're falling asleep. He begs them three times, please sit with me. Be near me. Stay with me tonight. I'm in turmoil. I really need you. I need your prayers. And what do they do? Oh, well, they're too tired. None of them sit with him. None of them pray with him. None of them hold his hand or put a hand to his back, letting them know that they are there. Not a one. And then the soldiers arrive to arrest them. What do they do? After an initial stand by Peter, they all flee. It's easy to say we believe in Jesus, isn't it? It's not hard to go through the motions of being a follower of Jesus. But when it's time for that rubber to hit the road, when the going gets tough, when our own lives must change, and when we're facing peer pressure, when we are influenced by popular agendas, when we're challenged by our neighbors and hushed by people who live by more secular standards. What do we do? We balk at upsetting that status quo. We're embarrassed to proclaim Jesus in our lives to those who don't believe in him. We don't like people thinking we're odd or maybe old school just because we happen to follow some guy from 2,000 years ago. So we become afraid and we back away. It's hard to follow Jesus in a world of nuns and duns. It can get us into a lot of trouble with a lot of different people. We like to be good people, but we don't want trouble. But Jesus... Man, that starts with a capital T with this guy. 
he was then and still can be now depending on who you talk to now Pontius Pilate he was the Roman governor when Jesus' ministry was in full swing, had a particularly interesting way of averting trouble and pleading innocent even as he sentenced Jesus to death. He had been approached by the high priests in very early morning hours, and they had a favor to ask. Okay, it was more of a demand than an ask, but let's just go with they had a favor to ask. And clearly he wasn't in any mood for any of them. Jesus has ended his time with his beloved disciples washing their feet. And Pilate ended his time with those annoying priests by washing his hands. In that ritual of washing his hands. What did it mean? We see it year after year after year. It's in every gospel. We've talked about it many times. But what is really going on in Pilate's mind? Was he employing the Jewish custom of purity? Washing away his responsibility? I really doubt it. See, Pilate's a shrewd politician. And he's definitely smarter than that. What was he doing placating the religious establishment, even as he made sure Jesus would never threaten the political status quo? Sometimes we try to make Pilate seem to feel guilty, or at least feel saddened and reticent about sentencing Jesus to death. But Pilate was not that kind of guy. Historically, he's known for being ruthless, stubborn, and downright deadly. Pilate was your worst nightmare if you threatened Rome in any way, threatened what he wanted, or even if he just didn't like you. According to the historian Philo in De Legrionde Dacaium, uh, written about 590, Pilate's administration was characterized by corruption, violence, robberies, ill treatment of the people, and continuous executions without any form of a trial. In fact, his very first act nearly caused a general insurrection. When his predecessors, respecting the religious feelings of the Jews, removed from their standards all effigies and images when they entered Jerusalem, Pilate allowed his soldiers to bring them into the city by night. And as soon as it became known, crowds of Jews hastened to Caesarea, where, they, where, the, procur, where, the, procur, where the procurator resided, and besought him to remove those images. After five days of discussion, Pontius Pilate ordered his soldiers to surround the petitioners and then and put to death unless they ceased to trouble him. He yielded, but only when he saw that the Jews would definitely rather die than bear this insult. And later, Pilate appropriated funds from the sacred treasury to provide for the construction of an aqueduct for supplying the city of Jerusalem with fresh water from the pools of Solomon. He suppressed the riots provoked by the spoliation of the temple by sending among the crowds disguised soldiers carrying concealed daggers, who massacred a huge number of Jews that day. And it wasn't just the rioters who died, but also just casual spectators who were watching the spectacle. And despite his former experience with the sensitivity of the Jews concerning images and emblems, Pilate hung up in King Herod's own palace gilt shields dedicated to Tiberius. And again, this nearly invoked an insurrection. The shields were removed by special order by none other than Tiberius himself, to whom the Jews had protested. 
And Pilate's last deed of cruelty, the one which brought about his downfall, was the massacre of several Samaritans. They had assembled on Mount Gerizim to dig for sacred vessels, which an impostor had led them to believe Moses had buried there. And concerning this massacre, the Samaritans lodged a complaint with Vitilius, the legate of Syria, who ordered Pilate to return to Rome and defend himself. So, Pilate was not a nice guy. He didn't wash his hands because he did not want the blood of an innocent man on his hands. Pilate honestly couldn't give a damn about innocence. In fact, when he does hand over Jesus to his soldiers, they beat him viciously. Pilate is playing such a sinister kind of game. He's playing with the Jewish authorities, whom he utterly despises. He's playing with Jesus, and he's also playing with his wife. They dared to try and play him? He'd show them the meaning of that word, and he'd placate his wife in the process. See, Pilate's wife, Claudia Procula, in the apocryphal uh, Gospel of, Saint, of Nicodemus, was a Jewish proselyte. And as a woman of high class, Claudia would have had considerable influence in the Jewish faith. She may have, in fact, objected to the high priest's corruption in the apparent mock trial of Jesus, who she knew had been speaking God's truth and healing many people. When Pilate is in his praetorium questioning Jesus, Claudia sends a message to her husband in this gospel, urging him not to condemn the prisoner he held. Jesus is a just man, she says. She had been visited by a dream, she says, in which God told her not to condemn Jesus, and she saw dire consequences ahead over the death of this man. So what does Pilate do? See, Pilate is a cunning politician. He's clever. He's crafty. His wife is a daughter of Caesar Augustus. He'll need to appease her in some way, so he pulls off a clever ruse. Needing to appease the anger and insistence of the Jewish authorities who obviously for their own reasons, want Jesus dead, and wanting to satisfy his wife, who had been influenced by the Jews as a God-fearer, who he hated more than anything. He would just need to appear, you know, just. He would need to play the game of discussing Jesus' fate, maybe with the man himself, and he'd do so in a way with, poten with the potential threat in the process See, Pilate didn't care if Jesus lived or died. Hell no. And he definitely would have leaned toward death no matter what, especially when the word king seems to be floating around all over the, this guy, right? When he was clued into the masses of people following Jesus, it wouldn't have mattered what Jesus had said. He wasn't having anyone live who possibly could incite an uprising in the Jewish people who hated Rome's oversight. So Jesus was expendable. His life was cheap, and he would have to go. But Pilate also didn't want to give in to the priests either, or give them the pleasure of telling him what to do. They arrived at his palace in the wee hours of the morning, disturbing him, wanting him to dispose of their problem, and to top all of it off, if that wasn't enough. 
They wouldn't even come inside for fear of degrading themselves before the Passover by allowing their feet to touch his desecrated palace. Nah. Pilate held no sympathy for this group of, quote, officials, end quote. But he held no sympathy for Jesus either. He did, however, want to appease his wife. Happy wife. Happy life. So asking the Jewish authorities, therefore, if they wanted Barabbas or Jesus was a clever game. Both, Pilate knew, were threats. But Barabbas was small time, an annoyance, of course. But if he had let Barabbas bow, he knew the man was an idiot. And he'd do the same thing, and he'd get caught again. So, maybe Pilate could snare two mice with one trap. So Barabbas, an insurrectionist, rabble-rouser, riot insider, and a murderer, he got a few people riled up, sure, but he had no significant following. There was no great power in that. He was a petty criminal in a way, just another one of the guys who occasionally would try and start shit up in the city. But Jesus, on the other hand, was brilliant. He had a massive following among the common people, and his steely silence was more than infuriating. He wasn't like the others. So this one could possibly be a real threat. And Pilate would have seen this. No wonder Herod and Pilate, both former enemies, by the way, became friends after Jesus' trial. Pilate undoubtedly saved King Herod's kingly butt. At least, that's what he'd make it feel, right? Jesus may have been your absurper, Herod, he would have reasoned. But to appease his wife and bait the Jewish authorities, Pilate plays a clever game. He asks the high priest who they want to send to death. This innocent man? Or Barabbas? He already knows exactly what they'll say. They hate this man. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been asking him for a favor. Annoying little men. Choose, he says, dangling that Jesus carrot. And by majority voice, they sentence Jesus. The high priests are frustrated and angry, but they are determined. Not Barabbas. No, 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 no. Jesus. They need to get their way. After all, they just arranged for his secret arrest. Rushed him through an illegal trial. And soon it would be done and the people would start to get wind of what the hell was going on. So they needed Pilate to hurry. And they need to finish this now. Pilate is taunting them. He knows they want Jesus dead and now he's hesitating. Just enough to make them mad. Just enough to make them shout. So the high priests just insist louder. Finally... Pilate relents. But he goes through the long motion of deliberately washing his hands, proclaiming to the Jews that Jesus' death is on them. Oh, he should have been an actor. His charade is so good, he watches the priests take it upon themselves as he mimics their purification ritual. He signals to his wife that he heard her plea, but acts as though the decision is, quote, out of his hands. Yet at the same time, in the custom of Rome, for Pilate is in no way bound to Jewish tradition of hand-washing, 
Pilate washes his hands in Roman style in preparation for victory, in preparation for the destruction of a dangerous opponent. For Pilate, sentencing Jesus is now one more notch in his political doorpost. In a crafty and cunning political move, Pilate has won through his hand-washing tactic. He gives the command. Pilate has won. So Pilate pulled the wool over the Jewish authorities, placated them into thinking that he had done just what they wanted with this age-old ritual. He subdued his wife, to whom he will claim he was just put into a difficult position and had no other choice. He silenced the possible enemy of the state, this Jesus, who claims to be king of the Jews. He even gained a friend in Herod, whom he will make sure feels he owes him a favor. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests boasted. <laughs> You're right, you don't, Pilate must have thought. And you know what? I'll make sure you won't. Is this how it went? Or is Pilate just afraid as his wife? Did his own superstitions overcome him? Did he merely want to get rid of this problem called Jesus? Make him somebody else's issue, maybe. Pass that buck on. Get him out of his realm of responsibility. That doesn't sound much like the pilot described in history books. But then again, no one's ever met someone quite like Jesus. While Jesus' disciples fled the Romans and the priests and seems everybody else is fleeing Jesus, he's a little too spooky after all. Judas goes back, tries to pass the buck to the high priests for betraying Jesus. Too spooked to deal, he ends up committing suicide. In one of 8,000 ways. It's like, he dies like three times in the New Testament. Look it up. Either the high priest, either he dies by hanging himself in a tree in what would be called the potter's field, which is then bought by the priest, or he bought Potter's Field and hung himself, or, the third version, he s fell on his own sword on Potter's Field. The apostles find the gold, or silver, and use that silver to buy Potter's Field, which is then used as the first Christian burial ground. Other which way, the dude's dead. Potter's Field is bought... And the high priest passed the buck of silver to use at the Biopotter's Field in this particular sermon. It'll change. Stick around for three years. We're going to hear all this stuff again. In different, confusing ways. But the high priest also passed that buck of Jesus onto Pontius Pilate. And Pilate tries to pass it to Herod, who then gives it back to Pilate. And Pilate passes the final buck to the high priest again by washing his hands. Maybe he shudders, part of victory, part fear. He just wants to be done with this strange little man. Was Pilate's hand-washing a ritual of passing the buck of responsibility? A petition of innocence? A decision of power and victory? We can't be sure, but we know that hand-washing and foot-washing are two rituals that have a profound meaning in the days before Jesus' death. One signified humility and service. 
both a symbol of atonement and cunning of power. The early church would use the symbol of foot washing, the symbol of the disciple's servanthood. In fact, foot washing was so popular in the early church that it, comp- that it competed for a while with the Last Supper as one of the two most definitive markers of the body of Christ. The other being baptism, of course. Jesus' disciples realized later that when they discovered what had happened after they had fled, when they found that Jesus was genuinely sentenced to death, what that defection of theirs would mean. Only later would they need to get over that fear, that reticence, and that reluctance to go into the hostile culture, even if they were, quote, wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove, end quote. They wanted to be the faithful disciples of Jesus. But they wouldn't realize the importance of that mission until the day of the resurrection. It's easy to be afraid in a hostile culture. It's easy to think that we've done enough. Maybe sometimes even necessary to hide in the face of danger, especially when you don't know how to proceed in a world of political savvy and religious extremism like we got outside today. But it comes a time when we prepare for the day of the resurrection. And a day we prepare for the coming of our king. A time when we prepare to come out of hiding and face our accusers, Jesus' accusers, and tell it like it is. Because remember, Jesus is the true atonement, the a at one with God for all of us. Soon, the day will come when we must proclaim Jesus as Lord, proclaim Jesus as victor, for Jesus is victor. Not the high priest, not Pilate, not Herod, but Jesus, King of Kings. Suffering may endure for a day, but joy comes in the morning, says Psalm 30, verse 5. It's time for Jesus' followers, all of us, to come out of the shadows and into the light. To proclaim that Jesus is alive and powerful in this world. To offer hope to the dying, joy to the living, and to prove that nothing, not politics, not religion, not hate, not sorrow, not sadness, not hopelessness, nothing can prevent God from realizing God's kingdom here and in heaven. So get ready to make some noise for Jesus. Get ready to make a mark of him in your life. To proclaim Jesus as Christos Victor. And get prepared to bless others with the words Christus Victor. May Christ be victorious in your life. For he may be sentenced to death. But he will rise again. And nothing will ever be the same. But for now we pray for his coming. And we prepare the way, clean and true, in our hearts for a child to be born.
So will you stand firm in your faith? Or will you flee? I want to thank everyone for listening this week. And I really want to give a big thanks again to my daughter who made the duck. It is so amazing. It is so pink. I love it to pieces. I also want to thank uh, Kate, who is so supportive and so, so big part of my life and in my ministry and in my podcast. Honestly, if it wasn't for her, you would not have me to listen to. So, big, big love to her. Uh, she's my everything. And you're my everything, too, in a different way. Um, love y'all. Take care of each other. And, of course, what the duck, man? Lord, please don't burn us, don't fill or toast your flock. Don't put us on the barbecue or simmer us in stock. Don't raise or make or boil us for